We are in Daniel chapter 5. We are moving away from Nebuchadnezzar now. Nebuchadnezzar II has died, and time has gone by, and the narrator is not interested in all the kings that immediately came after Nebuchadnezzar. He's now interested in Belshazzar. And so the story will pick up with him. Chapter 4 and 5 are meant to be read together. And this can be seen in the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned multiple times, and he's being compared to Belshazzar. And the idea that the goblets and the vessels from the temple are mentioned in chapter 1, and they're mentioned here, specifically taking center stage, there's a sense of Nebuchadnezzar II, and even though he was not godly, he eventually responded to God. And Belshazzar, who's going to have the same God experiences, who will not respond to him, they're being contrasted in this story. Both are experiencing God and Daniel in somewhat of the same ways. The wisdom of Daniel, God working through Daniel and the wisdom, the miracles, God showing himself superior to the gods, and yet there's two completely different responses. And the, 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 the beauty of this chapter is it doesn't paint this fairy tale, fairy tale story that if people encounter God in a powerful way, they just always come to him. And that's not always true. And we get this impression that miracles just automatically bring people to God, and that is not true at all. Most of the time, miracles actually don't draw people to God. And when they do, those people's devotion only lasts so long before they're turning back on things. And even Jesus pointed this out in his ministry. We see this in the book of Kings with their revivals and that kind of stuff. And so we're seeing this contrast here. So in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, King Belshazzar prepared a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in front of them all. And while under the influence of wine, Belshazzar issued an order in order to bring in the gold and silver vessels, the one that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had confiscated from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles together with his wives and his concubines could drink from them. So they brought the gold and silver vessels that had been confiscated from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles together with his wives and concubines drank from them. As they drank wine, they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. In this passage, it says that Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar II. And we know, historically speaking, that's actually not true. Not at all. In fact... Nebuchadnezzar II reigned for 40 years. He had one of the longest reigns of this Neo-Babylonian empire that he built from his time to the time that the Persians are going to come in and collapse everything. He is succeeded by his son, Emil Marduk. Marduk being the name of their most high god, their storm god. He reigns from 562 to 560 B.C., and he actually made religious reforms that angered the priesthood. Most likely, he was strongly influenced by his father's conversion. Because what's interesting is in 2 Kings, at the very end of chapter 25, one of the last paragraphs in the entire book of Kings, it says that when Amil Marduk became king, he took Jehoiachin and put him at the banquet table. Now remember, Jehoiachin was one of the last kings of Israel. He was the second to last king of Judah. Sorry, Judah. And he was captured by Nebuchadnezzar II, taken over to Babylon, and then put in prison there. 
Then he was replaced by Zedekiah. Um, and then Zedekiah was taken by Nebuchadnezzar and killed. Jehoiachin stayed in prison. When Nebuchadnezzar II died, Emil Marduk brought him out of prison, clothed him in royal robes, sat him at the banquet table, gave him an allowance, and he said, the Bible says that he remained at the banquet table, as in like eating with him, all the rest of his life. And so Emil Marduk took the last king of Judah, the line of Judah, the descendant of David, who would eventually lead to Jesus, and restored him to a banquet table. And banquet tables communicate covenants with each other. They were family, and we're in a covenant now. And so that seems to suggest that he was strongly influenced by his father's conversion. And then he continued, we know from um, historical diagrams, that he made religious reforms, narrowing down the gods that you could worship, and this anger of the priesthood, how he was doing this. So there seems to be an influence there. Now, was he converted as well? We're not really exactly clear. Point of Kings mentioning that at the very end is giving you hope that even though all of Judah and Israel has been taken into exile, and now the Davidic line has been seemingly wiped out, the book of Kings ends on this positive note that the Davidic line is being restored to the banquet table. And it's foreshadowing God's promise that he's going to restore Israel back to the land one day and bring a Messiah out of that line. Emil Marduk was assassinated by his brother-in-law, um, Niger, Nir Igor Lishar, who reigned from 560 to 556 and restored all the paganism back to the Babylon. So it seems like obviously his reforms were not popular among the everyday normal Babylonians and some of the royal members. So he is, was assassinated and this guy restored everything back. This was his brother-in-law. He was then succeeded by his son, Labish Marduk, who was an only child. And nine months later, he was assassinated by Nabonidus. You always love, like, every time you go through kings, it's like assassination after assassination. Nabonidus neglected the chief Babylonian god Marduk and gave priority to the god's sin. So Nabonidus becomes the la one of the last kings of Babylon, and he's ruling. And he actually becomes obsessed with the god sin. Now, sin is just phonetically coincidental with our English word sin. But he was the moon god. And so he's not bringing religious forms like bringing monotheism, getting rid of paganism. He just likes the moon god better than the storm god, Marduk. And so he begins to promote him. This also angers the priesthood, and they don't like him. But he actually is more interested in being archaeologist, so to speak, than actually being a king. And so he goes off and he starts restoring all these temples to sin and starts making them prominent. And this angers the priesthood. And he leaves his son in charge, who is Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is like the punk kid who inherited everything but really has no responsibility. And he basically just parties all the time in the banquet hall and doesn't really do much. And that's what we learn from historical documents. And all these kings seem to be skating on the empire that Nebuchadnezzar II built. But because they're spoiled and skating on that wealth and that prestigious prestige and that power, that's going to open them wide for Cyrus II. 
And so what's going to happen is Cyrus II is going to take advantage of this anti-Nabonidus, because Nabonidus is anti-Marduk, and Cyrus is going to say, I'm pro-Marduk, and the people of Babylon are like, yay, come in and save us. And that's what's going to open up the gates for this, the Persians to come in. So Belshazzar is not even technically king. He is kind of a co-reigning with his father, and only because his father's left the palace. And he's not even the son of Nebuchadnezzar II. And so at this point, Babylon is declining significantly with these inferior kings that came after them, which we talked about in chapter 2. But that doesn't mean the Bible is inaccurate historically. Because this word father, you have to understand in the Hebrew, they don't have as exactly the, the, the same distinction between father and grandfather and ancestor that we do, or descendant and son and grandson. There's a lot more give and take with how to use this word. And this word, most likely, scholars have seen how this word has been used in other documents, and it probably refers more to like our American idea of our forefathers or our founding fathers. And so it's not the Bible is claiming a biological sonship, but that he is just in the line. And many people believe that Nabonidus was like the, a great nephew or something like that of Nebuchadnezzar II, but that he's more in the line of kings. He's the same dynasty. And that's a totally legitimate use of this word. Now, when you go on the internet, that's a very famous thing of atheists and people who are like, see, the Bible's inaccurate, da 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 But most of these people don't really know how the culture or the language works to really understand that they're just full of crap when they're saying this stuff. He is more like of our father. Now, other scholars have argued that, yeah, but he wasn't technically king either, so the Bible got that one wrong when it calls him king all the time. But that's not accurate either because this word king is also not a precise technical term either. And we've seen this specifically from historical documents. There's an Aramaic and Assyrian inscription on a statue discovered in Tel Fakhariya in Syria. And a Tel is a giant mound. So what they would do is they would build a city on top of a hill and the people would come in and destroy the city and so they would just build a city on top of that rubble, and they would destroy that city. And this happens over hundreds of years, and you just get this taller. Now, they like that because the taller your hill is, the harder it is to tack in the future. So these tells, so you can uncover these different layers. And depending on how far you dig is how far back in time you're going in archaeology. And so these things are called tells, that they're layered cities. And there was a statue there to a 9th century B.C. ruler by the name of Gazan. And in this, there was a Syrian on one side of the statue and Aramaic on the other side saying the exact same thing. And this is one of the things that we love when kings conquer multiple things. They write in multiple languages and this helps us understand how languages work really well because we can compare that language with a better known language. And on this document, in the Assyrian, it uses the word that he was Sakin of the territory. Sakin is the Assyrian word for governor. But on the Aramaic side, it says that he was the Melek of the territory. The word Melek is the Aramaic Hebrew word for king. And so that shows us that in his culture, he was a governor. 
But when they chose the equivalent word in Aramaic, they used the word king, which shows that Belshazzar could be technically a governor, like all these historians have said, but using the word king in Aramaic is a legitimate title for him because this word king is actually not as technical as we might have thought that it was being used throughout history. So does that make sense? And so basically this shows, once again, all those naysayers are like, this is historically inaccurate Bible, actually are not right. And they're not right at all. This is the beauty of archaeology. Every time they discover something, they just prove somebody else wrong every single time. Once again, it's one of those things that you're like, okay, only geeks really care about this, but these are just things that strengthen our confidence that the Bible is a historical document. And over and over and over again, people constantly say it's inaccurate, it's inaccurate, inaccurate. And then just give it enough time and we dig something up and we find, no, this is actually really precise. And the Bible actually is a historical document. Now, its main goal is not to be a historical document. It's not trying to teach you history because there's a lot left out. It's primarily a theological book. But the history that's in it is accurate because God is a God of truth and he's a master communicator. And this just validates that. Belshazzar throws a banquet in his own honor. And he might be, we get this sense from religion, from historical documents, he might be using his father's absence to try to get everybody to like him so that they will push their favor to him. And because they already hate dad, and he throws parties for everybody because I'm the fun guy, the frat boy, then everybody will like me, and this will be very easy to kind of take over the throne while dad is gone, so to speak. Unfortunately, he's not very politically savvy. And so notice here the contrast, where Nebuchadnezzar II had built his own empire, and not only did he throw parties and banquets, but he was highly respected as a leader and a man who built an empire and a place of prosperity for everybody. Belshazzar is not having a party for any of his accomplishments. He is having a party with everything that Nebuchadnezzar has done. He's got the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took. He's in the palace that Nebuchadnezzar has built. And he basically has nothing to celebrate of his own that he has accomplished. So instead he just tries to throw parties to make fun for everybody so they'll like him that way. And so what you see here is a picture of not only a pagan man, but a man that is completely empty of his own accomplishments and is literally just trying to use amusement and entertainment to win the votes of everybody, so to speak. And this is what you see here. But he does something incredibly sacrilegious. He pulls the vessels of the temple out. Now, this is operating on multiple levels. First, this is incredibly sacrilegious to God. These are the holy, sacred vessels of God's temple. And even though God's temple has been destroyed and the people have been taken to exile, these were still meant to be treated as if they were holy, sacred, unique, and unlike anything else. And remember back in Leviticus and some other books, we talked about what holy meant. And the word holy just means unique and unlike anything else. So the only one who's ever really holy is Yahweh, because he's the only thing in all the universe that is unique and unlike anything else in all of creation. 
we can be holy and the vessels can be holy and a temple begin holy because when they are used by God, they're being used by God in a unique way that is unlike anything else in creation being used. So a car is a car that gets you somewhere. But if a car becomes holy, it's being used to build the kingdom of God, which is unlike any other car in the world. And so this is how things become holy. So these vessels are still supposed to be seen holy because they were used in a way that is unlike any other cup was ever used, and it was to atone for sins and sacrifices and ceremonies and festivals that were to connect you to Yahweh. And so he is violating this by one, he's a non-Jew. Only the priests were allowed to use these vessels, let alone a non-priestly Jew, let alone a non-Jew. And so he's using these vessels not being a man of God and not being converted and not being a Jew. And the other thing is he's using them in an idolatrous kind of way to praise the gods of material. And basically you can interpret this as not just the gods of bronze, silver, metal, and that kind of stuff, but the gods of materialism. And that's what he's using. it. So this is sacrilege on two major levels. But even in his own culture, this would be sacrilege because even the Babylonian kings and the Persian kings understood that even though this was not their God, it was still the vessels of a God. And you do not want to anger or um, you do not want to offend the gods. Remember in the paganism, there's not, the gods don't usually get mad at you for being immoral because the gods are like way more immoral than you are. So they're not going to punish you for that. What they usually get mad at is they get offended for the littlest things, like America. And they just get offended that you touched their sacred sheep or you walked on this ground that they really liked or you used their boat that they really liked or something like that because they played favorites with things. And so they would strike you with plagues and stuff because they just got really offended. And you didn't know what you offended them because you don't know the gods and you just had to sacrifice until you figured it out. So there's no way any king, any Babylonian is going to disrespect any god whether they believe that god is the most powerful or not. Because remember, everybody believes in the gods and everybody believes in everybody else's gods. They may not worship them or honor them as the highest but they will still revere them and respect them because who knows, you might end up in their backyard one day and you don't want to be at their mercy. And so not even Nebuchadnezzar brought these out and used them in a party sense. He put them in his temple and he kept them there. Belshazzar is showing that he has total disregard for everything. He has a disregard for the, 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 the God of Israel, Yahweh, he has a disregard for his own culture. He has a disregard for his own gods. And he has no sense of respect of what it means to be a king. And in this way, he really is truly being painted in this stereotypical Hollywood frat boy kind of a sense. And therefore, this is a man who's literally just enjoying the, what everybody else built. And he has no respect or honor or regard for anything in any kind of a way. And notice how many times it mentions this just in this paragraph. Verse 5, At that very moment the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the royal palace wall opposite of the lampstand. The king was watching the back of the hand that was writing and then all the color drained from the king's face and he became alarmed 
and the joints of his hips gave way, and his knees began knocking together. And the king called out loudly to summon the astrologers, wise men, the diviners. And the king proclaimed to the wise men of Babylon that anyone who could read this inscription and disclose its interpretation would be clothed in purple and have a gold collar or necklace placed on his neck and be third ruler in the kingdom. He is in this banquet, and all of a sudden, this giant disembodied hand starts writing on the wall and carving in it. And notice how quickly his disposition changes. This, this is the power of God that can change him like that. He's partying, he's drunk, and then all of a sudden he's losing it. And he's freaked out of his mind. Anybody would. Okay, anybody would. Now, it says that his joints gave out. And it says that when most translators translate this as like he fell and got crippled and that kind of stuff. Not crippled, but like he was so shocked that his legs gave out and he like fell to the ground. That's not likely though. When you're this drunk, he's probably not staying around. We know he can sit here. There's several translators who actually think that this word joint should be connected more to the pelvis and that his bowels gave loose. And so he basically pooped his pants in shock. Now, you know anything about alcoholism and all that kind of stuff, and that's very possible. And so what this is, this is another one of God's sarcastic satires where he likes humiliating these people who are pagans. And this stuff happens a lot. His immediate response is to seek all these advisors. Once again, over and over and over again, they go to all the wise men. And so this becomes a court narrative where you consult all the wise men, the astrologers, and that kind of stuff, and they can't figure it out. Now, we don't know exactly what this writing on the wall is. And you're like, yes, we do. It's right there. <laughs> okay, it says, many, many tekel parson. We really don't know what that means. We only know what it means because Daniel kind of tells us. But this doesn't seem to fit. And so it might be, there's a couple possibilities. It could be a phrase that was written in cuneiform. Cuneiform is the first alphabet that was ever developed. It was a series of lines and triangles. And it could be a very, very old version of it that even we don't, well, we wouldn't know it because the cuneiform letters are not here in the Bible. We just have the, the, the Aramaic version of it all. And that cuneiform has been a dead language for a long time, even for them. And it's very unlikely anybody knows that. Or it could be unpointed Aramaic. Now, what un unpointed is, is that in the earliest days of languages, there were no vowels. Even in Hebrew, they're all consonants. And you're like, well, that would be hard to read. But you'd actually be amazed. If you take all the vowels of English words, you can still read it. And in fact, the original Hebrew, there was no spaces between words. And you'd be amazed. You can take all the vowels and all the spaces out of words, and you still are able to read English pretty well. So, and especially if you did that on a regular basis every single day of your life and grew up with that. And Aramaic is the same way. But as time went on, we get lazy and we like spaces and we like vowels. And this is what's called pointed languages when you put the vowels in. And the vowels in these languages are not letters like ours are. They're little lines and dots on the top and bottoms of things, kind of like our versions of crossing, underlining like the E when you're doing the pronunciation of letters or dotting the I. They're little points and little lines. And this is what Jesus meant by not no um, dot or tittle would pass away. Everything would be fulfilled. And so it could be Aramaic that's unpointed, but 
it's been a long time since anybody's read Unpointed Aramaic in this time of Babylon, and so they don't know what it says. But at the same time, those are two complete guesses that scholars have come up with because we really don't know. So this is written on the wall, and nobody can interpret it. And of course, by now we know, duh, because that's the way these stories go. This comes from God. Now what's interesting is it appears by the lampstand. It's like, well, that's kind of odd to specifically mention the lampstand. And it could mean a couple of things. It could mean that the lampstand was shining on the wall and clearly lighting it up so the, the scholars are without excuse. This is not like some archaeologists who climbed down in some ancient Egyptian tomb and they've got this teeny little like candle like in the Hollywood movies trying to read this inscription in the dark. This is a clearly lit thing and yet they're still incapable of doing it. But it also may refer to the fact that it is illuminated by God's light. The lampstand in the context of God it always is connected to the light of God and only his enlightenment can bring knowledge of this understanding. The question is, historically speaking and culturally speaking, why a disembodied hand? Remember, everything that God does has a reason, and he's always refuting the gods of the ancient world. And so with the, the Egyptian gods, each plague matches up with the most prominent gods, and he undoes them. But all was the god of the storm. And so with Elijah, it was who can bring down lightning from heaven first, God or Baal. And so everything comes down to God usually does something and the way that their pagan God was really good at it, but he shows them up and does it better than them, showing that he's a more prominent God. So the question is, what does this have to do with the Babylonian gods writing on the wall? And the answer is Nabu. We talked about the fact that Nabu is the God of writing and destiny. And he is the god that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, got his name from. May Nabu protect my boundaries. Or may Nabu write a good destiny for me. And so if he's responsible for tablets of destiny and writing out your future on the wall, and then whatever he writes is what will happen, then what God is saying is, he doesn't write your destiny, I do. I write your destiny. And so the question is, Nabu is obviously going to write a good destiny for Belshazzar, but God is writing a bad one because we've read the rest of this chapter. And so the question is, which one will come true? Unfortunately for us, unfortunately for everybody else, it's literally that night that God's foretelling comes true. And so God is showing that he is actually the God of destiny and not Nabu. And this is speak powerfully to the Babylonians who revere Marduk, who controls the Tablets of Destiny, and Nabu, who has a play in that as well, that God is actually superior to this.